We're going to read God's word together and reading from Acts chapter 27 and I'm going to be reading from verse 9. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. He appealed to the emperor in Rome. He was packed eventually onto a boat headed for Rome and they get as far as Crete in the journey and here is what happens. We pick up the story from Acts chapter 27 reading at verse 9. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them. Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that they should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw the opportunity and they weighed anchor and sailed along the coast of Crete. Before long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, the storm continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have this faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the fourteenth night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was forty metres deep. A short time later they took soundings again and found it was thirty metres deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. 
Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them. Then he broke it and they began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they'd eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. Amen, and thanks be to God. Suffice to say, they found that they found land just after we closed the reading there, but you can read the rest for yourself. The background to today's reading is something that we know from the Roman records. And that was grain ships. They came from Egypt, which was rich in grain, and they brought their supplies up to the city of Rome, where the emperors used them to keep the mobs happy by giving them their bread and their circuses. They were so politically important that the emperors invested quite a lot of money, ensuring that there were good financial incentives for large ships to plough that route, bringing the grain up. Sailing from Italy to Egypt wasn't particularly difficult, but sailing back was. The currents, the winds were always going to be against you. And if you got delayed and ended up into the closed season towards the winter, it was particularly dangerous. About 20% of the ships that ploughed that road route would get into serious trouble. Paul had been being transported from Jerusalem up to Rome when the guards that were taking him had got on board one of these ships somewhere in Turkey. And that was the ship at the centre of this journey. We have it in quite good detail in Acts 27, principally because, as you'll notice from the passage, Luke starts using we. He was with them. And he records details that check out when we look at the nautical and other records from that day. The later chapters of Acts we might entitle the sufferings of Paul. Paul has been beaten, persecuted, arrested, tried about five times, put in prison in Jerusalem and then in Caesarea, left there for two years and finally he's appealed to the emperor in hope of justice and is being transported to Rome. And so in these chapters we have a reminder both of the particular sufferings of a Christian being faithful to God and finding himself persecuted, which many Christians know to this day. And at the same time, the real suffering of Paul finding himself in a storm. A storm where he shares a boat with 276 other people, not many of whom are believers, most of whom are sailors or Roman soldiers or just other travellers, but who are in the same lot. So that idea, perhaps for us, of both the sufferings that Christians can know, but also the sufferings that we have as Christians that everybody experiences. As you read this chapter, there's perhaps 
a hint also of just how dark it can get when we're going through a storm, whether it's a physical storm or those, I don't know, almost symbolic storms of our own sufferings and our own trouble. Verse 17, it speaks of them being driven along out of control. We all know what that feels like when we're really going through it. Verse 18, it says they, they threw the cargo overboard. If you think about that for a moment, the cargo was the whole point of the whole mission. If you threw that overboard, then you were almost saying the whole thing is pointless. There's no gain in what we're doing here. And then verse 20, they could see no sun or stars. It was getting dark. But also for sailors, that meant no navigation, no sense of where they were going. It seemed impossible. From a human point of view, they are at the point of despair, a place of darkness and of suffering. Now, the question we always ask in any place of suffering is, is why? Why is this happening? I wonder as Paul went through the storm, he might have been asking the same question. And maybe the story that connects with this in the Bible the most is the story of Jonah. We've been reading that in the midweek services, the story of Jonah and Jonah going through the storm and the sailors and they were throwing things overboard. It's almost the same story in some ways, except there's a critical difference. You see, Jonah was in trouble in the sea because he was running away from God. God had told him to go to Nineveh. He was headed in the opposite direction. He was rebelling. He was refusing to preach. And so he ended up in trouble that was really his own fault. But here's Paul. And it's the opposite. He's going to the big city, to Rome, precisely to do, to witness as God is commanding him to do. And yet he's suffering almost the same storms in almost the same seas that Jonah did. Perhaps in those two pictures we have that honesty of the Bible that sometimes when we suffer and ask why, we can say it's our fault, it's our rebellion, it's the things that we have chosen to do. And other times it's not our fault. It just happens and we have to make some sort of sense of it. Let's dig a bit deeper though. Paul has been sent to Rome by the governor of Judea. He's on the ship. The ship heads for Turkey, first of all, and then it picks up this big boat to Egypt. It's late in the season and there's very bad weather as they come through Crete. Now, the first thing that happens is that Paul actually advises them. He's an experienced traveller and he says to them, you know, you should really stay here for the winter in this port and in Fair Havens. It's a good place to stop, but they decide not to. They're going to push on. They're going to look for a better port to spend the winter in. And it all goes wrong. And we've seen in verses 13 to 20 just that increasing sense of despair in the storm where they begin to think that they're going to die. And then at verse 21, Paul begins to address them again. And this time they're actually going to listen to him. He intervenes. And what I want to look at um, this morning is, is just how we see in Paul's intervention, in Paul's speaking to them, we begin to learn something of the nature of storms and of suffering. Verse 21, Paul starts by saying, well, he basically starts by saying, I tell you this was going to happen, which is perhaps not the most tactful thing to say. But he goes on in verse 22 to say, keep up your courage. 
because I have a word of encouragement for you. An angel appeared to me last night and the angel said to me that God has a plan and God's plan is that I would go and testify before the emperor in Rome and therefore I will get safely through the storm. And what's more, God has said, so will all of you. A reason in suffering for courage. A simple word. God has a plan. God is in control. As we've gone through this coronavirus epidemic, I've been struck just by those simple words that invite us to trust. He's got the whole world in his hands. And how comforting, and, and yet somehow, sometimes how difficult that is to believe that God is in control. Paul speaks here of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, verse 23. And therefore a clear message that he's giving, do not be afraid. God is in control as much as it might not seem like that. I've said this before, but you know, it's, it's, it's strange. Did you know that the, the most common command in scripture is not thou shalt not do this or thou shalt do that. It's simply those words spoken by angels and prophets and the word of God so many times to his people. Do not be afraid. God has the world in his hands. Is it therefore God's fault that we're in the mess? God's in charge of the plant. It's not much of a plant. We've got this mess. Well, no, that won't quite do either, will it? I mean, Paul's quite honest in these verses. In verse 20, he said, we wouldn't be in this mess if you'd taken my advice. You put the boat out to sea. You've put us in danger. You've been so keen to make a profit on this lot that you've been willing to risk your ship. But even despite the fact that the blame could be put on the sailors and the soldiers and those that have made the decisions, yet God has a plan and God is in control. This is the heart of what we believe and the heart of our faith. Paul wrote to the Romans. It's interesting there, he's going to the Romans, but he had actually already written a letter to the Romans which said this, these famous words from Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, those are very comforting words, although we have to be careful with them. They are not saying all things are good. All things are not good. They are not saying that God planned all things and he planned the bad things and therefore if bad things happen, that's God's intention. No, they're not saying that, but they are saying this. God is working out his plan, his loving plan through it all. You know, sometimes Christians can take this in a very flippant way and we end up saying, well, well we should be glad about everything. You know, that sort of Pollyanna, be glad for everything that's around you or the Monty Python skit, always look on the bright side of life. But the Bible doesn't do that. It's realistic about suffering. There is sin and death and brokenness in God's good creation. There are lots of things that God did not intend that are here. And yet what faith says is despite all of that, there is a good God and he has a plan. 
Paul knows the next part of his plan and it's that sense of purpose that gives him hope and not despair. He knows that he's going to get to Rome. He's going to testify there. That's what God has said, that trial before the emperor. Of course, that's not just saying, well, all things will work out fine, never mind. In fact, they didn't work out fine. Paul doesn't have a clue at this point what's going to happen when he gets to Rome and he testifies to the empire, to the, before the emperor. He doesn't know what God's plan is. And in fact, Luke doesn't tell us in the book of Acts. Maybe Luke doesn't even know as he writes it. But we know Paul would go to Rome and he would testify before the emperor. And eventually the emperor Nero would have Paul executed. So whatever this is saying about faith, it's not saying, well, it's fine. Everything will have a happy ending. Not at all. But our courage comes from knowing there is a God and he has a plan. And despite it all, we are in his loving hands. That is why we do not despair and we do not need to be afraid. Now, notice some of the paradoxes here. Verse 22, Paul says to the sailors, and the crew and the people on board, not one of you will be lost. There's God's promise. Not one of you will be lost. But then he goes on to say, but the ship will be lost. So there will be financial loss here. And we will run aground on some island. And then we find two weeks later that the sailors begin to sense that they are approaching land and they begin to, to put down things to test the depths. And as they do that, they, they get the sense that they are running towards some sort of island. Paul is correct. The island actually will be Malta. Uh, but fearing the rocks, what we're told is the sailors, now that's the experienced crewmen on board as opposed to the passengers and the soldiers, they launch a lifeboat and they get into it. They're beginning to try to save their own, their own skins here. And Paul says to the person in charge, he says this, verse 31, unless the sailors stay with us, you cannot be saved. Now, at a human level, this is perfectly understandable. Unless these experienced men are on board to help steer this ship and get it safely to some sort of land, then we're all going to die. So you need to make sure that they don't leave us. And that's what happens. But think about it from a point of view of faith for a minute. Verse 22, not one of you is going to be lost. That's God's promise. Verse 31, you need the sailors in order to be saved. And there's a little bit of us when we, when we see that, we're left scratching our heads. How can this be? God is saying everybody's going to be all right. Paul is guaranteeing that in God's name. And then Paul is saying, ah, but if you don't have the sailors on board, it's not going to work out. So is it? about God promising and God delivering, or is it about us doing practical things like having the sailors and getting the thing right? Which is it? Is it all down to God or is it all down to us? We'll see the same dilemma in verse 34, where it says, where Paul says, you need to eat to survive. And then he goes on to say, but not one hair of your head will be touched. Which is it? Is it down to God or is it down to us? And we struggle with that. Is this about me or is this about God? Is it 50-50? How does it work? The Bible always comes to the paradox by saying this. God is 100% in control. And what you do matters 100%. You see, if it's all about God, then that's a bit depressing because it means it doesn't matter what I do. 
whether it's good or bad, it's just going to happen. God set it all in the stars or whatever else it is. It's all fate. Nothing for me to do. Just sit back and accept it. And that really won't do. But you see, if it's all about me, then that's really depressing because I'm going to fail and it's all going to go wrong and I can't solve it. And so I despair. But the Bible insists for the person of faith in Jesus, it's both. Perhaps the best example is, is in the Old Testament in the story of Joseph. You know the story. Joseph ends up a slave in Egypt. Why does he end up a slave in Egypt? Well, partly because his father played favourites with him and his, his brothers. And partly because Joseph was a brat who just annoyed people and said all the wrong things. And partly because his brothers were bitter and murderous and, and they sold him off to slavery. And yet when Joseph comes across his brothers later on, he says to his brothers this, you intended all of this for evil, but God intended it for good. You see, God's plan, God's purpose is bigger than you are. In the story of Joseph, what God was going to do was bring salvation. He was going to bring salvation to Egypt. They were going to be saved from a, a horrible famine by Joseph's actions as he became prime minister. You know the story. And through that, actually, the brothers themselves were going to be saved. That was God's plan for good. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean what the brothers did was good. Rather, that God in his power took the human badness, the wrong choices, and turned it round for good. Evil would not have the last word, but God would. Now, we see this supremely in the story of Jesus, don't we? It is a story supremely of human evil. God's perfect son comes loving and healing and proclaiming and he suffers injustice. He suffers rejection. He's killed on a cross. It looks like the triumph of hate and evil and rejection. But actually, God turns the whole thing round so that the very things that people are doing for evil, God uses for the redemption of the world. He uses to show his amazing love. He uses that all of the sin and the evil of the world would be defeated. And ultimately in the resurrection, everything would be turned around until all the pain and the sin and the hurt and the evil of the world would be defeated. So this idea of God's power and God's love, meaning that the human evil, the bad choices, the suffering, the sin of the world would not have the last word. What might we learn from all of this? Well, suffering can teach many things. I, I can't possibly be exhaustive about that. But one of the things it does is it destroys the illusion that we're in control. We like to think that we've got our lives planned out, that we've managed our future, that we've got all the plans. And suddenly, when the suffering comes, when the trouble comes, it reminds us that we're not in control. Like those sailors driven along by the wind, they couldn't see the stars, they couldn't navigate, their sails were useless. They suddenly found they were not in control. Of course, 
when we find we're not in control, then we begin to despair. But that is the point that the scripture begins to reassure us that God is in control. When we find we are not in control, the temptation is to give up. Well, what's the point? What's the point in trying anything if I'm not in control, if I can't solve the problem, if I can't end the pain? But ironically, when we discover a scriptural understanding of God being in control, then it gives us the confidence to act again. It gives us the courage to realise that there is a point, that there is a meaning and therefore a context that we stop despairing, we stop standing around helpless and we begin to re-engage because our actions have become more meaningful as they become part of God's plan. Now when I preach on the su subject of suffering, I'm always painfully aware that the theologian or the biblical scholar or whatever it is can speak on these subjects and actually if you're going through it just now that might not be helpful. Glib answers, clever scripture texts that come along and sometimes they leave us quite hollow. One of the things that's told to pastors is when you're looking at people who are really going through it and you're asking what on earth do I see? How do I find the answer? to their questions, to their whys, that that's actually not the thing to do at all. The thing to do is just stand with people, to sit with people, to be with people, to let them know that you are there in your care and your love. And you see, the Bible supremely tells us that that's what God did. He didn't send an answer. He didn't send a book of philosophy that would explain how it was that there could be suffering and yet a good God and try to square all these things. Scripture gives us pointers and resources, but it doesn't answer all the questions in the way, the tidy way that we might like. But what it does tell us is this. There is a God. He is in control. And almost more importantly, he stands with us. We are not alone. As Paul journeyed through that suffering, first of all to Jerusalem, to the trials and the pain, and then onwards to the place where he would almost certainly die in Rome, he must have been aware, Luke is certainly aware, that that almost connects with what Jesus had gone through. Jesus himself had made that difficult journey to Jerusalem. He had been tried and he had been killed. And constantly, Paul must have been connecting that sense of Jesus with him. As he'd gone through a storm, those stories that Peter might have told him about the boat in Galilee and the Jesus on the boat and all the other things. You see, the unique thing that Christianity gives above every religion, above every philosophy, is simply this promise. God is with us. He so loved us that he sent his son who shared this life with us, this pain with us. And in him we see the plan that begins to turn everything round. Sometimes it's the simple things rather than the profound things that help. He's got the whole world in his hands. Or perhaps in another children's song with Jesus in the boat, 
I can smile at the storm. Smile at the storm. Whatever we are going through just now, may we find courage in the knowledge, not that it is all good, not that we will all, all understand it, but somehow through it all, through all the pain and the suffering and the things that aren't good, there is a God and he is working out his plan for those that he loves. His plan that will in the end bring the redemption and renewal of all things in his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.